0: So, this is the question that is buzzing in my mind. It has been all week, and to be honest, has been for a large part of my life. Uh, it's a question that takes different forms in different situations, but it, it's fundamentally this. How then can this person be changed, come to see Jesus? How can this friend of mine who seems so hardened and turned off to who Jesus is, how, how can that friend of mine come to see what, what God in his graciousness has, has shown me? How, how can my family come to see Jesus? How, as a pastor I ask, how can this city once again, see Jesus with the clarity that, 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 that a much, much larger proportion saw him in, uh, in, in centuries and generations gone by. How can, how can we reach out with the good news of Christ to this new generation that seems so closed, so locked uh, off from him? And I know for some people... The question is more personal. Okay, my interest has been piqued. um, I've heard these things, but it hasn't really clicked for me personally yet. What's going to need to happen to make the difference so that I can say, yes, I know and worship this Jesus? In a a sense, uh, John chapter 9 is focused on answering that question. If you've, if you've been um, looking at John uh, with me, you'll remember that John 7 and 8 is, is in a sense a pause, those two chapters, after the first four signs about who Jesus is have been uh, unfolded to us, the, the sort of miracles that he did, which were signs to who he was. And because there's seven of them, the, once the fourth one has happened, um, then we're halfway, or at least we've we've crossed halfway. And uh, uh, and John pauses in John's uh, seven and eight and looks around at the people, and the people, frankly, are overwhelmingly confused. By and large, actually, the ones that are starting to see more clearly who he is are actually becoming more hostile to him. The worshippers are few and far between, and that, despite the fact that there's plenty of evidence out there for who Jesus is. But it seems actually that though there's evidence out there people, people are either unwilling or is it perhaps that they're unable to see the real Jesus. This is, this is a very real question for me. A very real issue for our city when it comes to to looking at Jesus. And John, um, after pausing and uh, looking at these varied responses, in John, uh, John chapter 9, John begins to describe a fifth sign of the seven signs. A miracle that Jesus did. A man is born blind and Jesus opens his, his eyes. We saw that in the, in the story as... Um, as Andy read it. I don't know whether you noticed, but in uh, um, at the end, for instance in in verse 39 of John 9, it becomes very clear that for Jesus and for John this is a miracle with a deeper spiritual significance. Um, Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And the issue is not really so much physical organs of sight so that we can Uh, we can see our way round. It's having uh, sight to see the truth about Jesus. And some, he's saying, are actually becoming cut off from that progressively as he reveals himself more. But others... Have their eyes open. So, here, here in this chapter, then, is the answer to my question, and I want to look at this chapter with that in mind. How are the people that I know and love, how are the people of this city going to come to see who the real Jesus is? And the first thing we need to, to, to see and understand and think about for a little while is that it is significant in this story that this man's blindness is congenital. He was born with it. Uh, as he went along, we, say, we see verse 1, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. And um, uh, immediately the question comes up in the, with Jesus' disciples, is, is this associated with some sin of his or perhaps some sin of his family? His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, that's not such a stupid question, Um, if um, we we think about it for for a minute. I mean, firstly, within the the simple processes of, uh, of our human biology, sometimes we have the sins and failures of our parents visited on us. If anyone has met anyone suffering from fetal alcohol syndrome, for instance, where um, our parent, uh, our mothers who, who, who grossly overdrink can severely affect their children for the rest of their life. We, 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 we know that sometimes there are consequences that are visited on someone. And uh, uh, these Pharisees know their Bibles too and they know that sometimes it's not just in the natural course of things, sometimes... Um, God will bring some uh, judgment by his own hand, that's what the Bible says. Uh, sometimes, tragically, on whole families, some, more often specifically directed against the person. For instance, just to take one example, Luke records in Acts chapter 12, verse 23, that Herod, the um, Roman governor, um, accepted praise of himself as God, and he did not praise God, Luke tells us, and an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. It's probably actually a, a nasty form of necrotic peritonitis that he had um, um, that uh, would create, give him a slow and, and terrible death. And Luke says that, that that was from the hand of God. So these people are not are not being totally ridiculous In saying, well, is there some specific sin in this man or in his family that has caused this? Actually, biblically as well, um, the Bible is quite clear that all evil and suffering that is in this world is ultimately associated with human sin. Um, uh, That's what uh, the story of, of Genesis chapter 1 to 3 makes very clear. But here. They are on the wrong track. And uh, we will be wise to realise that actually for, for us, again and again, it is just not wise to try to associate every trouble that a person goes through with either their specific sin or their family's um, specific sin. That is not the way the world works. Even if it does on occasions, it doesn't universally. And ordinary human beings are wise not to claim that they can interpret God's providence. In particular, Jesus says quite clearly, this is nothing to do specifically with this man's sin or his parents. Verse three, neither this man nor his parents sin, said Jesus. But this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. He has a congenital problem for which he's not particularly, nor even are his parents particularly responsible. It is just part of his living in the fallen world. And as such, he is a perfect example for Jesus to teach us a lesson. Because the Bible says that's what, that's what it's like, actually, for all human beings when it comes to seeing the real Jesus. We have congenital blindness. Not particularly because we are particularly awful sinners. It's just the way we are born as human beings. For Christians, that is so, so important for us to imbibe. Christians believe that God has graciously opened their eyes and he has not enabled us to see. We were not enabled to see Jesus because somehow we were less sinful than the next person. There's that famous story of the, the uh, reformer, John Bradford. He was a, a, a preacher and he got himself uh, um, in prison, in fact, on, uh, on death row, uh, effectively. Um, but uh, in prison, he saw other prisoners who were going to the gallows for their heinous crimes. And he looked out of the the window and he said, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. But for the grace of God I would be here condemned for similar crimes. I am not intrinsically better than any of those people. See, the world around, sadly, gets the impression again and again and again, Christians think they are better than the world around. If we have imbibed the gospel, that cannot be true. And although we will never avoid the taint of that at times... We must do everything we can not to let that seep into our hearts. All human beings, not particularly due to any any particular sin, suffer in the same way from blindness. And we, as Christians, are not any better than the next person. This man, then, then, has a congenital problem, a problem actually that he cannot do anything about. So, in this story, it needs a radical solution, and that's what uh, we start to see unfolding in this story. There is the initiative of Jesus, verse 6. After saying this, uh, um, some words, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, put it on the man's eyes, Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. It is Jesus' initiative in this man's life that makes the difference. Scholars have, have wrestled. Why does he use mud? Why doesn't he just say, see, and uh, have his own eyes open? That happens elsewhere in the Gospels. Why here does he, Jesus use Um, mud. It may be just that sometimes Jesus wants to do something physically for a person as well as just speak the word as part of his physical engagement with them in a a sort of whole bodily way. So he puts his fingers in the ears of a a man who can't hear for instance and says says be opened. But there may be more to it in this case um, than that down through the centuries numbers of people have suggested it's very significant that he, he picks up a bit of dust and then he makes it into uh, mud and then he puts it on, on, on the eyes uh, of this man they suggest that it's, it, it feels akin to the description of God originally making the first man who was made out of dust is it that Jesus, is, is, it that Jesus is, is, um, is working a new act of creation in this man's eyes, symbolically, by giving him renewed eyes from the dust? It would certainly fit with what uh, John says elsewhere. Human beings need to be recreated in total. Um, in, a, in a few chapters' time, we'll be seeing Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And making him new, bringing him out of the tomb. Maybe this is a, is a little anticipation of that recreative work of Jesus. Others suggest that it's very significant that he spits on that mud to, that, that dust to make it, make it into mud. You see, spittle was unclean. So by rights, actually, according to Jewish law, to spit on a man should have made him unclean. But Jesus seems to have some, some sort of anti-law about him. So that Jesus spits on a man, and the man becomes whole. Again, you find Jesus doing similar things elsewhere. So, so when he meets lepers in the, in the other Gospels, and touches them by, according to the Jewish law, they should have uh, have made him unclean. But it's transparently obvious that it goes in the other direction, so that they actually become clean. It may be that there's an element of that in what Jesus is doing, in which case it's particularly significant that, that there then becomes uh, detailed questioning by the Pharisees about what uh, Jesus has has done, because they should have worked out something weird was going on here. Something that, 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 that broke the, 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 the law and superseded the law. Because here's a man who makes people clean when he spits on them. Maybe actually Jesus specifically wants to confront them with the truth about who he is By doing that the miracle in that way. It certainly, as we'll see in a minute, becomes a confrontation between him and them. Here is Jesus then. Cutting through all religious systems, there is no religious system that can give you life and can open your eyes. They all of them fail. There is only Jesus. Jesus, who by His touch can recreate, Jesus who who supersedes any rituals or laws and makes blind people see. This is what John, John, John is showing us. But alongside this 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 initiative of Jesus, there is a necessary response of the man. Did you uh, uh, did you did you notice that he? Uh, um, uh, he sent him to the pool of Siloam. Um, um, let me get that. Go, he said, verse 7. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. John seems particularly to want to emphasise this word means sent, which it does in, in, in Aramaic. What, what, what's, what's, what's going on there? Some people have suggested again that that in John's Gospel up to this point, Jesus is the one who has been sent. But it probably, um, uh, in fact, anticipates um, the end of John's Gospel, John chapter 20, verse 21, where Jesus makes this connection. He says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And so here, as the Father has sent Jesus, so intrinsic to his being able to see, he must respond to the instruction to be sent. There is a necessary response. We said, when we look back in John, John chapter, chapter 7, Christianity fundamentally, Christian truth fundamentally is discovered experimentally. You cannot step back and expect to understand it all as a dispassionate person before you take your first step. It just doesn't work like that. We come to see the truth as we set out, step by step, on the path of obedience. His eyes were opened as he responded to being sent. So his condition was congenital, common to actually all people. It was changed by the initiative of Jesus and by the simple response of the man. But it's the response of the man that then um, becomes uh, centre stage And where John starts to uh, answer the question perhaps that I have a little bit more um, uh, fully. My question how are people going to see? Are they going to need the initiative of Jesus? They're going to need people to be willing to respond. But those people who respond, says John, they cannot help but be witnesses. Look at look at this because it's it, it's just uh, it's just fascinating as the story um, unfolds. It, it it oscillates between confusion and hostility of other people, uh, and the and the simple witness of this man. Um, confusion, for instance, verses eight and nine. His neighbours, those who had formerly seen him begging, asked, "Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg?" Some claimed that he was. Others said, "No, he only looks like him." And he, But he himself, here he is, insisted, I am the man. And then he goes on with that simple straightforwardness. Um, Verse 10. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed and then I could see. And here they come back to him, where is this man, they asked. And at this point, notice, he's, he doesn't know that much. I don't know, he says. Yeah? Here's, here's a man who's been touched by Jesus. Here's a man whose eyes have been opened. But he's, but he's hardly a professional apologist for the Christian faith yet, is he? I just, This is what happened to me, he says. It's an awful lot I don't know. But I'm going to tell you, This is what happened to me. Verse um, um, 16, the the confusion, indeed hostility of the Pharisees begins as they start to manufacture false arguments. Some of the Pharisees said, this man, that's Jesus, is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a sinner perform such signs? And so, so they were divided. It's very interesting. The Pharisees have done it again and again and again. Because he doesn't conform to our rules, we're going to dismiss him. Isn't that so much what, 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 our, what our world um, does? Because, because he doesn't conform to my morality, but actually cuts through my assumptions about, about, about morality, well, I'm going to dismiss him out of hand before I even you know, look at him carefully. Because he says that um, uh, sex is only for heterosexual married couples. Well, I I don't believe that, so I'm going to dismiss him out of hand. Because he doesn't um, subscribe to my agenda on ecology. Well, I don't believe that, so I'm going to dismiss him out of hand. Because he's not particularly um, anti-bankers enough. Well, I don't believe that so I'm going to dismiss him because he's not anti the Occupy movement enough. I, I will dismiss him. And on it goes. We have a prior set of moral convictions and we're not prepared to let the simple truth of Jesus penetrate into those and question them. We, we, we cut him off with false arguments before he, he, we even start to look at him. That's what the, that's what the Pharisees are doing. And here's the man's simple response. Verse 15. um, The Pharisees asked him how he'd received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Verse 17. They turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And here he is. He's starting to compute a little bit. He said he's a prophet. He's sort of going through his categories of great people that this, this man could be. And he's starting to think, yeah. Perhaps he's a prophet. There is is a simplicity about this man, you see. A straightforwardness. A thoughtfulness. That is so contrary to the clever but false and aggressive arguments of those around him. And uh, uh, on on it goes. The, um, uh, The others are desperately casting around for another solution so they go and talk to the parents and the parents his own parents are complete cowards we know he's our son the parents answered and we know he was born blind but how he can see now who opened his eyes we don't know ask him he's of age he will speak for himself his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. They're terrified. They won't stand up and say, "He's telling the truth, our son." And uh, um, and so the Pharisees have to come back to this man, verse twenty-four. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. And this time they charged him on oath. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. We have concluded, because of all those arguments that we have manufactured for ourselves, that he's a sinner. Now you've just got to provide the evidence for it. And the man, understandably, is a bit annoyed by now. Verse 25... Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And then they asked him, what did he do to you? Have did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Yeah, maybe that's a bit tongue in cheek, isn't it? You foolish people. You tie your minds up in complex arguments. You dismiss what is obvious before your eyes. I was blind and now I can see. And that is obvious to you, isn't it? You can't deny that. Try as you might to do so. And then look at how it goes on, verse 28. But hurled insults at him and said, You are his fellow disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God... He could do nothing. To so this, they replied, You are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. It is simple, straightforward, but notice courageous witness that makes the truth about Jesus absolutely undeniable. And don't mistake it, that will make some people absolutely determined in their opposition. But it will also display the glory of who Jesus is. Now I take it that the vast majority of people here have had their eyes opened like that man. Have come to see Jesus. And I want to say to you first of all, you don't need to have all the answers. To display the glory of Jesus in your life, this man didn't. His answers, are, his understanding is slowly maturing as he interacts with people. He will be led at the end to know Jesus and to worship Him, but he's on a journey at the moment. But he's still an extraordinary witness. Let, let, let me say to you as well: you, you, you don't need. To be particularly clever. It is who you are that displays the glory of Jesus. As He transforms you, people will see. Let me say to you that you do need to be courageous and straightforward. the parents of this man knew perfectly well what had happened but like ostriches they stuck their head in the sand and they didn't want to get involved and it is this man who simply stands up and says look, I haven't got all the answers but what I know is that Jesus enabled me to see So how's the world going to hear about this Jesus? It's going to hear in part because of the extraordinary reality of who Jesus is. He touches people and he changes them. But amazingly is going to hear as well. Because those people who are changed cannot help but bear witness. I want to ask you, has Jesus changed? Has Jesus opened your eyes? And just live that out in front of the world. And God will do what he needs to do through you. Get going to leave this.